Good morning. Thank you so much for being here to worship the Lord together today. I always look forward to being with you, to exalting Christ together. So excited this morning to introduce to you a guest speaker who will be sharing with us tonight. Uh, Cheryl Mingo has been in Nicaragua serving alongside of her, her husband, her family. Uh, the Lord called her husband, Adrian Mingo, to home to be with him. And um, I know that uh, Cheryl misses him so much. We miss him. But you know what? She is continuing to be faithful to what God called her and the family to do. Uh, she also is joined by her daughter, Noelia, and her son-in-law, Jose, and they just continue to serve the Lord there. So she was telling me that tonight uh, she has a special presentation she'd like to share with us. But I thought maybe you would love to hear from Cheryl herself. So let's welcome Cheryl Mingo as she comes to tell us what we can expect tonight. Cheryl, welcome. So good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a privilege to be able to come and share with you um, a faithful church that has been praying and supporting our ministry. Um, tonight I'll be sharing a video. I've got a 13-minute video that shows um, what God is doing, and um, you guys are a vital part of what he's doing in Nicaragua, so um, I encourage you to come tonight. I'll be sharing that. I'll be sharing a little bit about, <clears throat> excuse me, um, what our projects are, prayer requests, and you'll have an opportunity to ask any questions. Um, hopefully I'll have some answers. Maybe not, but um, so I invite you to come. It, it's not super long, but um, it would be a good time to be able to just get to know me. You're used to seeing my husband up here. If you've been here in the past, um, I'm not going to preach. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're disappointed, right? Um, but it will be a good time to be able to um, get to know me a little better and um, get to know the ministry and just see in person what um, God is doing there and the part that you've had in that. So I invite you to come. I think it's at six, right? Thank you. It's at six o'clock. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. I do invite you to come. I know it'll be a, a really interesting time for all of us, and you'll know how you can pray specifically uh, for their ministry. So I invite you to come. How many of you went on that last mission trip? Would you raise your hand if you went? I know there's several of us. Yeah, there's several. Uh, we, we were involved in some construction. I think there was some that worked with uh, children, and then some of us uh, worked with the pastors. After one of the break times after lunch, I went into the pastor's area and I noticed that there was a, a message on the whiteboard. And of course, our men had been out in the hot sun all day and there I was inside with the pastors. And so someone had written a note there that said, I should have been a pastor. And so anyway, I, I don't blame them for saying that, you know, I'm not gonna throw them under the bus who that was, but uh, anyway. We, uh, we had a great time. I also remember serving alongside of uh, Adrian. The first time I met him was not on that mission trip, but a previous one. And he invited me to preach. And so it was so exciting. I mean, they were just packed out that night, but there was a, a thunderstorm. It was raining so hard and there was a, a tin roof and it was really loud on the roof. And so I'm just preaching at my normal, you know, uh, volume. 
But I noticed that Adrian was so exciting. He was my translator. And I thought, I'm giving the message. It should be equally exciting when I give it, you know. So anyway, I started kind of increasing my excitement level. Well, he was thinking of the rainstorm too. So his volume level, he could get really loud, right? I mean, he could really sound off. So we kept going back and forth. So by the time I get back to Columbus, I lost my voice. And so I, I was looking for sympathy and I went to the men's prayer breakfast and I remember telling them, look, the, the ENT says that I need vocal rest for two months so I can't say a word. And all I remember is Ed Taylor saying, thank you God for answering our prayers. <laughs> and I'm thinking, which, which side are you guys on? What's going on here? But we've always had a great time whenever we've gone to Nicaragua. I'd love to uh, take another trip down there, another mission team. And so hopefully tonight we can hear more of what's going on and know how we can plug in to what's going on. I hope that you will plug into God's word this morning that's found in Luke chapter 24. Uh, we, Josh and I have been walking with the Father through the Gospel of Luke, and you've been uh, walking with us on that journey. And so last week, I thought it was gonna be the last one, but I couldn't, I just could not end on the resurrection only, as important as it is. I thought, you know what? The Great Commission also deserves our attention. So when we think of the Great Commission and we think of the Mingo family and how faithful they've been to that Great Commission by going to uh, Nicaragua, uh, we usually think of Matthew, Math, maybe Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, where the Lord says, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? That's exactly what you'll hear about tonight. But our passage this morning is Luke's version of the Great Commission. Matthew's version is maybe more prominent in our thinking, but this one also is very important because it comes right from the lips of the Master, right from the lips of the head of the church. You know, I think that we could give the title to the message this morning, the marching orders for the church, the marching orders for the church. What does the Lord expect from all of us who are his disciples? What are our responsibilities until his return? Before Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father, he left specific instructions as, well, let's just call him our commander-in-chief, the commanding officer over each one of us as his followers. What did he say to us? I couldn't help but think about it as I read an article this week, and I thought, are we carrying out the purpose? The commanding officer gave us this great commission. Are we carrying it out? I ran across an article dated July the 5th, 2022. It was written by a man named Matthew Christopher, and it was called Abandoned America. And I didn't know what it was about, but the article was about the largest and the fastest ship ever built in an American shipyard. It was constructed by 3,000 pairs of hands, and it debuted in 1952, called the SS United States. Whenever they were getting ready to build this ship, the U.S. government said, you know what? We would like to pay for a major portion of that. The total price tag was going to come in at $79.4 So the U.S. government said, we will kick in $50 million 
of the 79.4 million if it could be used as a transport vessel to deploy 15,000 U.S. troops. So they were agreed. They said, sure, that sounds good to us. But you know what happened? It was never used as a transport vessel carrying soldiers. Instead, in the 1950s and in the 1960s, it somehow became a celebrity cruise liner. And so stars like Walt Disney, Marilyn Monroe, and Cary Grant, and others, they began to just take it whenever they would go across the ocean to uh, Europe or wherever. Now, the SS United States, which has been nicknamed Big U, is just docked in Philadelphia at Pier 82. They're trying to figure out what do we do before it just totally rusts out. Most of it's already been gutted out, but they're thinking maybe we could turn it into rental space. Rental space. And so they're thinking of how to repurpose it. All I can say is a ship was not designed to stay in a harbor. You know, a ship was designed and constructed to sail, wasn't it? Well, what about the church? What about us? What we're about to read is the purpose. This is what God intended for us to be and to do until he returns. Are we carrying out this purpose? Or are we getting distracted on other purposes? LifeWay Research published a 2021 study based on data from 36 denominations in 2019. So this is pre-COVID. 2019, they found that during that year, 4,500 churches had closed. What? A church closed down? The 2021 Faith Communities Today study revealed that across the United States, the median worship attendance over the past two decades, this is basically the 2000s, has dropped. The average attendance has dropped from 137 people to 65 people. What's going on? What is going on with the churches in America, the churches perhaps even around the world? So I'd like to invite you to please stand, have your copy of God's Word. I also have the scripture verse on the screen in the ESV. That's what I'm reading from. But if you have a different translation, that's great. I mean, you will get even more depth of understanding as you read even a, a different translation. But I'm going to read this and then we'll pray and we'll ask God to once again remind us what's our purpose. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him 
and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we need to hear a fresh word from your word. Lord, there are so many voices telling us as believers, as disciples who are following our Lord and Master, there, there are so many voices telling us to be involved in this or that. So Lord, would you just clarify, simplify it? Let us hear from your own lips, from the word of God, what you want us to be about until you return. May we be faithful to the marching orders that you've given to us, the church. So speak, Lord, as we listen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. First, I want you to look with me at verses 44 and 45. We looked at these last week, but I thought we should look at them again this morning from a different angle, a different perspective. That perspective being, let's examine the motivation for missions. The motivation for missions. I feel that the motivation for missions is twofold. As we understand what God has said in his word, suddenly it just ignites a fire in our hearts. Cheryl, this morning I was reading in Hebrews 1 how it said God makes his servants a flame of fire. I couldn't help but think of Adrian. I thought he was a man on fire for the Lord. Are you on fire as, as a sister in Christ, as a brother in Christ? Do you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? The more we're in the word of God, I think it fans that flame. But I think we also have to have a personal encounter, a personal experience where the Lord saves us. The Lord changes us. And suddenly it's not just something we read in scripture alone, but it's something that is actually pulling us and guiding us and motivating us forward. Whenever I think about the biblical understanding Notice that Jesus said all of those things in the Old Testament, they all were written about him. He said, all of those things written about me, they must, they must be fulfilled. As you and I understand all of history, time and energy, all that this life is about, it's all about Jesus. It's all about God fulfilling his plan, pointing people to Christ. As we understand that the Old Testament, the New Testament, they're very much connected. That's what we're gonna look at on Wednesday night, how the cross connects so much between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can look in passages like Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, where it refers to these Old Testament sacrifices. You know, when you came in today, you didn't see animals being brought in animals being offered up to God, right? Why is that? That is because Jesus died on the cross. There are no more, there's no more need for a sacrifice of a lamb or a, an animal, uh, some kind of bull or a goat or these kind of things. No, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. That's why sometimes like in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 5, 7, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is referred to as the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb. It's like he fulfilled all of that so that now we put our faith and trust in him and it just motivates us 
to want to go and tell people, especially whenever I would see people in Japan praying to an altar of stone, praying to an altar of wood, offering up some green tea or offering up an offering of fruit. I wanted to say to them, you don't have to do that. Jesus is the way to find acceptance before God. But oh, it makes such a difference if you've been born again, if you've surrendered your life, if God's opened your eyes and you can see, now it's like you get excited. You know, it's sort of like in Psalm 51, David had sinned against God. And in Psalm 51, he writes about that. David writes about his sin. And he says, oh, how I need God to cleanse me personally. And you know what he said was gonna happen whenever he got personal cleansing? There was gonna be a personal experience of joy, personal experience of joy in his life. And he knew whenever the joy returns of my salvation, he knew something else was gonna happen. You know where it leads? Well, let me read it to you. These are David's words in Psalm 51, verse 13. He says in Psalm 51, verse 13, then whenever the joy comes back, Whenever I'm clean, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. There's something about it. Whenever you taste his goodness and his love, it just motivates you to want to go and share that with someone else. Well, let me go to the second thing that I noticed about the Lord's uh, marching orders that he gave to us. If you are motivated to go, you better make sure that you know what the message is so that you don't go out there and then you just draw a blank and you're saying, well, I know I'm supposed to tell you something. <laughs> Verses 46 and 47, Jesus reminds these disciples, what's the core of the message? What are the core biblical truths of the gospel? Let me give you four of them to always include whenever you're gonna tell someone else about how they can be born again and how they can be saved. Of course, there's more, but these are four very critical things. The first thing is make sure you include in your message Christ's death on the cross. Christ's death on the cross. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the apostle Paul is saying to those Corinthians, he said, you know, when I came to you, I didn't come with lofty speech. I didn't come to you with lofty wisdom. I came to you and I preached one message, Christ crucified. That was the message. And so whenever you're wanting to share with someone how they can be born again, don't forget about the substitutionary death of cross on the cross when Jesus said, I will pay the price, the penalty, that you owe, that they owe, your friends owe, your neighbors owe, your coworkers owe. All of us are guilty before God. But the great news is, Jesus said, I'll go. I'll lay down my life. I will pay the price they owe. And the reason it counts is because he was innocent. He had not sinned, never. And so that's why his death on the cross was so powerful, but also include the resurrection from the dead. He's not still dead. He's, he's not in a tomb. Remember, the, the stone was rolled away and the women went in there. Even Peter goes in there. He sees there's no one here. The reason there was no one there was because he had risen from the dead. The early church emphasized Christ's resurrection. So include the death of Christ on the cross. Include his resurrection from the dead, but 
Also, thirdly, make sure you include the Lord's call to repentance. The Lord's call to repentance. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a great preacher in London. He had a message that he said, he called it Christ's first and his last subject. His first subject and his last subject in his messages. Do you know that in Mark uh, chapter one, it talks about how Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. So easy, repent and believe in the gospel. But why is it sometimes we leave off repent and believe in the gospel and we just say believe in the gospel? You know, he said, repent and believe. And then you see here in chapter uh, 24, his last message. He's about to ascend back to the father and he reminds them, here's what I want you to proclaim. You tell them repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You tell it to them. And so I'm thinking, thank you, God. You know, I found it interesting that Spurgeon kind of spells it out because sometimes we get real kind of crazy ideas about repentance. What does that mean? Well, Spurgeon put it in four different stages or steps and it can happen really quickly, but here's what he said happens. The first step he said in repentance is when you have illumination. You know what the Holy Spirit will do? He will convict you of sin and of righteousness and judgment. That's the first thing that happens whenever we know I need to turn. I'm going the wrong way. I'm making a huge mess of my life. And so that's the first thing is whenever the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, your spiritual eyes, and you realize, oh my goodness, I have sinned against a holy God. But then there's a second one is it's called the humiliation phase. Whenever we begin to feel terrible about our sins, it ought to bother you. It ought to be like the Holy Spirit squeezes your heart and you say, oh God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that I've sinned against you. And that's this humiliation stage. And then there's a detestation stage, a third one, where you begin to detest you hate sin. You begin to see what sin has done in the lives of others in your family. You see what sin is doing to our country. You see what sin has done in your life, my life. We begin to say, you know what? I don't like sin. I don't want to play with sin. I'm done with sin. And that is the last stage when suddenly your life begins to turn away from sin and there's transformation. That's the fourth stage. Whenever no one is standing behind you with a whip saying, you better get in line, boy. No, man, you want to do what God wants from your heart. That's when true repentance has taken place. That's why John the Baptist said, there ought to be fruits of repentance whenever someone has come to Christ. So that's why we turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ. So make sure you also include, fourthly, the offer of forgiveness. The offer of forgiveness, his forgiveness. Not too long ago on Wednesday night, I was talking about forgiving others and what could motivate us to forgive others. I'm not talking about someone who just said one thing, but, but others who have really deeply hurt us. How in the world could we ever forgive them? You know how that takes place? Whenever we realize that God in Christ forgave me, of all my sins. If he can forgive me of my sins, then who am I not to forgive others of their sins? And so what I shared with them was how Corey Tinbin and her sister Betsy 
were in a Nazi prison camp and they saw unspeakable, unspeakable persecution and horrible things happening in that prison camp. Her sister died in that prison camp. And suddenly after it's over and she gets out, she's released from the prison camp. Somewhere down the line when the war was over, she's speaking in a church. And a man begins to come toward her and she said, I saw him and I couldn't believe it. It was one of the prison guards, one of the Nazi prison guards that had been there that day. And she was thinking, he doesn't remember me. Surely he doesn't remember me. So when he came up to her, he said, Fraulein, I'm so glad to hear that you believe in forgiveness because I did some terrible things earlier in my life. And he said, I felt horrible about it. And it was when I met Jesus Christ that he let me know I could be cleansed and forgiven for all the terrible things that I had done. And so Corey Timboom is still looking down and she's thinking, oh God, can I forgive this man? And she said, before she knew it, her hand was down at her side. Before she knew it, it's like God caused her hand to, to go up and to reach to his hand because his hand was extended toward her. And so she took his hand and she said, when I did, I felt the warmth of God's love and the warmth of God's forgiveness flow through my life like never before. Let me tell you something. That simple message of the cross, the resurrection, repentance, and forgiveness, it'll change your life. It'll change a world. If we will simply say, okay, God, I'm willing to take that one simple message to everybody out there. Don't forget those four core biblical principles that make up the gospel. But I want to move to the third thing that we need to be clear on, the map, the map for missions. Those of you who know anything about my background know that my wife and I served for six years in Canada, for 12 years in Japan. I've continued to have the DNA of missions deep within my heart. You can't ever get it out when God puts it in. But I love missions and I enjoy looking at maps that describe where things are in terms of the receptiveness to the gospel. Do you know that in verse 47, I couldn't help but see some last six words of this verse, how they provide such clarity about the map. They supply such balance about the map for missions. They supply such direction about missions. They supply such vision about missions. Do you have a vision for missions? Whenever our commander says, I want you to go into all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and I want you to tell them this message, there's no way we can't have a vision for missions. It is his vision. He wants to download that vision into our hearts. So we have to say, okay, God, show me then. What's the map? There's a starting line. There's a finish line. The starting line is where we are. It's where you live. It's where I live. It's the people I already know, the people in my family. It's the people where I work, the people at my school. That's the starting line when he says, beginning from Jerusalem. You start from where God has you, but you don't stay there. You haven't fulfilled the Great Commission by only taking good care of your kids, by only you know, trying to be a witness to your extended family. What about those who don't have Christians in their families? We have to think, wait a minute, the Lord said the finish line 
is when all the nations, the word there is ta'ethne, it's not just nations as we know them, these geographical boundaries, but it's people groups, all the different people groups around the world. They all need to know that God wants them in his family, that God gave his son Jesus to forgive them of their sins. Do you know that in Acts chapter one and verse eight, it's similar to what we're reading here, but he says, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you know that Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, he took that and he just spelled it out. He spelled it out. He showed between Acts 1 through 7, Acts chapters 1 through 7, how did the gospel go to Jerusalem? But then in Acts chapter 8, how did the gospel go from Judea to Samaria? How did the gospel go to the rest of the world, the Roman world that is? Well, from chapter 9 all the way through chapter 28. I'm telling you, there's a map for missions. Sometimes that map has not yet been internalized. I'll never forget sharing with uh, this one church when I was a missionary to Japan, okay? I'm gonna tell you exactly the way it happened. After I shared my presentation, like Cheryl's gonna talk to us tonight about Nicaragua, after I finished talking, a man comes to me and he said, I was in the war, and he said, the only piece of advice I'd give you is don't ever turn your back on the Japanese. They'll stab you right in the back. And I said to him, no, no, sir. I, I said, I have friends. I have people that have trusted Christ. Their lives are transformed. I haven't found that they stabbed me in the back. And he said, well, just wait, because it's just a matter of time. And when I left, I prayed for him on the way home, because you know what I thought to myself? He's still fighting a war. He's still fighting a war that's real for him. So I'm not making fun of him. I'm not even criticizing him. Really, I'm saying I feel for him because he's still upset about what he saw in the past. And maybe he's got good reason to be upset. But just like Corey Tinba, you're going to have to do something with it. And so what he needs to do is to say, God, take the hatred out. Put the grace in Take it out, Lord, all the anger and replace it with mercy, Lord. Help me to have the same map that you have for, for my witness and for this church and so forth. So all I want to say is we've got to say, Lord, help me to see the same map that you do. Let me go to the fourth truth about missions. That is the method. It's just mentioned in one verse here, verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. I believe it gives us the two basic components of the methodology of the Great Commission. First, let's just talk about the personnel. Are just missionaries like the Mingo family, are they the only ones that are responsible for being a witness for Christ? What about the staff? What about Josh and what he does with our students? Trudy, what she does with our children? Is that it? Sunday school teachers and deacons? No, you know what? I believe that the personnel is every believer, every disciple, all of us. He says, you are, you are. I want you to hear Jesus saying that to you this morning. You are, you are, you are. Speaking directly to your heart. 
There were women at the tomb. There were two on the road to Emmaus. There was a room full of disciples locked in a room. And there's Jesus saying, you are. And so he would say to us in 2022, you are. But then I thought about what's the presentation in missions? A witness. He says, you're a witness of these things. No wonder in Acts 1.8, he repeated it again. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Remember, I read that earlier. Let's think for a moment on what a witness is. Is a witness the same thing as a judge? Is a witness the same thing as a prosecuting attorney? No, that's not your role. That's not my role. You know what my role and your role, what we are called to do, our responsibility is just be a witness. A witness doesn't have to know everything there is to know. It's like, I'm not opening my mouth. I don't know it all yet. I haven't been to a Bible school. A witness only is responsible to testify to what they saw, to what they heard, to what they know, to what they've experienced. You can do this. And that's what God is calling you to do. He's calling us to say, Lord, there's something you want to say through me. I might not be the most knowledgeable person on Christianity and the Bible, but there's something you want to say through me. And so God says, you are to be a witness of these things. Well, let's go to the fifth observation about missions. It's very important. And that is the might. That is the power, the fuel for missions. What would that be? Well, you know, verse, um, what is it? 49 here says, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. How important is fuel? How important is power? You know, I don't know if you're like me. I love football. I'm not going to talk about the Tennessee Volunteers like you think I'm going to. I'm going to, I'm going to get to the message here. A long time ago, in the Tournament of Roses parade, one of the parades sputters and stalls. And when it stopped, nobody could get around it. It was so large, they couldn't get around it. So everybody has to wait. The parade can't go on because one float ran out of fuel. They didn't know what was wrong at first and then they discovered, look at the fuel gauge. You are completely out of gas. And so they're like, sorry, I didn't think to check it this morning. I was so, so interested in how it was hooked up to the, to the truck and how it was hooked up to the float and all these different things. So they had to wait until somebody got a little gas can and came put gas in there. And what was really kind of like one of those, no, this can't be. It was a float sponsored by the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> Golly, you guys ought to know this, you know. What about you? We are sponsored by Heaven's Oil Company. God's behind us. The Holy Spirit is the oil. He's the power. And the Lord says, I'm promising you, I will supply the power if you will just open your mouth and talk and be a witness for me. It's like there was this incredible thing that took place because you do remember the context, right? Remember last week when I said that the doors were locked in this room? These disciples were scared. They were scared. They saw Jesus die on the cross. They knew he was innocent. So they were thinking they're liable to come for us next. So they just huddled up in that room and they locked the door. What could cause those men 
to suddenly become so full of courage that they unlock the door and they open the door and they go out into the streets of Jerusalem and they start telling people right and left, Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you. And they start telling all of these different things. We just saw him. He's alive. He appeared to us. There was an exchange of his power into their lives when the Holy Spirit came upon them. There was a deacon. This was not one of the original apostles. This is just a deacon named Philip. He goes to the city of Samaria. The Holy Spirit was all upon this guy. Powerful things happened. And so this guy that's a magician named Simon sees what's happening. He gets so excited about it. So whenever Peter and John comes, he tells Peter, he said, look, how much you need for that Holy Spirit power? I got some money here. I got silver and gold. And Peter said, what are you talking about? God's power is not like that. You can't buy it. You can't buy it in a store or something. It was a big mistake. The Holy Spirit's power is so unique. We have access to that power through Christ. Notice the expectation of his power. You know, he said, stay until you're clothed with power from on high. It's like there they were so persecuted. They were so harassed. They were so afraid. They were thinking we're going to be punished if we go outside that door. And yet once they went out that door, when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter two, you couldn't stop them from, from talking. They were telling them, look, you guys better stop filling Jerusalem with that kind of talk or we're going to whip you and work you over. And they said, you know what? If it's right to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge. But we can't stop speaking. We can't stop speaking. Why do we stop speaking when that same Holy Spirit, the same Lord Jesus, the same gospel is in our lives? I think the sixth and final truth that I see in these verses are found from verse 50 down through 53. It's like whenever they saw him ascend back to the Father, I think that they would have been marveling, just like the time in Canada when uh, Jody and I were standing out there with Ken and Kathy Yinger. And Ken Yinger, he's kind of like really brilliant. He's like a reader. I'm not a reader compared to Ken Yinger anyway. Ken Yinger's looking up there and he sees those stars and we're looking at the Canadian sky, it was so clear. We could see every star out there at the seminary campus. And Ken Yinger said, you know, those stars that we see, they're not really there. And I, I said, they're not there, I can see them. He said, yeah, but he said, you know, scientists say they burn out a long time ago. He said, it's just taking the light that long to get to us. You know what I mean? And he said, Victor, I turned to you and your mouth was open. And he said, you look like you've you know, seen something incredible up there. And I said, well, Ken, in Tennessee, if we see the light, it's there. If you don't see the light, it ain't there, you know? But anyway, I think when they saw Jesus ascend back to the Father's throne, I think that was beyond marveling. It was beyond being astonished. It was beyond being surprised and shocked. I mean, what word would you use for it? No wonder Luke, in Luke 24, verse 41, says they marveled at his resurrection. No wonder in chapter 20, he said they marveled at Jesus' answers. In chapter 11, he says they marveled at his authority. He had authority over demons. No wonder in Luke 8, verse 25, he says they marveled over power when he can stand up in a boat and make a storm close. Personally, I think all of that would have seemed so light 
when they saw him do this. And I think that they were standing there, and I think verse 50 tells me that I think they would have been marveling over his guidance. It says he led them. He led them out. Have you ever had God actually lead you? Man, it's an incredible thing when God guides you to do something. Also, I think they would have marveled at his blessing. Has God ever blessed you? Can you imagine what the blessing would have been? It said, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, two times he blessed them. Has God ever blessed you? I think if we were honest, we'd say, I got a whole life full of blessings. Has God ever done something miraculous like when he ascended, says he parted from them and was carried up into the heavens? Man, I'm telling you, God does so many things we can't do. And so what it wants us, makes us want to do is worship. I don't know about you, but sometimes when we're singing, I have a mansion over the hilltop. Sometimes whenever we're singing all of these songs about the greatness and the goodness of God, I just marvel and I can't hold it in. What about you? Do you, do you ever marvel over that? Do you marvel over his joy in verse 52? Do you marvel over his people in verse 53? Phillips, Craig, and Dean used to sing a song called, Your Grace Still Amazes Me. In the song, it says, each time I come into your presence, I stand and wonder once again, your grace still amazes me. Your love is still a mystery. Each day I fall on my knees because your grace still amazes me. Does it, does it still amaze you, really? Does it ever still amaze you? Or do you say, no, I'm pretty much over that now. In 1796, there was a man born in the northern part of Italy, Luigi Tarisio. He loved to play the fiddle. He worked hard as a carpenter. He specialized in repairing furniture. But as his woodworking gained him a certain amount of success, his opportunities to perform on the violin across northern Italy just kept increasing and increasing. And all the while, he kept on thinking, you know what? I love violins. I believe I'm going to start trading for violins. So he lived like a hermit, used all that he had to just continue to collect rare and exquisite violins. And the guy was illiterate, but man, he knew how to trade. By the end of his life in 1859, people were beginning to wonder, wait a minute, where is he keeping? I see him buying a lot of stuff. I see him trading for a lot of stuff, but where does he keep all this stuff? Nobody knew. And so there was a guy in Paris named Jean-Baptiste Boulalamou, me, sorry, I can't get this guy. I'm not from France, I'm from Tennessee. <laughs> but anyway, he purchases this guy's small farm out in the middle of nowhere. And so he goes in there and he's trying to find out where did he keep it, where did he keep it? And he goes up into a dark, dingy attic. And you know what he discovered up there? There were 24 Stradivarius. There were 120 other Italian masterpieces. I mean, violins, fine, fine violins. But a violin wasn't made to just be collected, to just sit there in the dark. A violin, those violins especially, well, they, they were made to be played. They were made for people to listen to and be blessed by. One in particular was nicknamed the Messiah because that violin was sought after all over the world. But there it was, 
just locked away in Teresio's attic along with so many others. And I ask you in closing of this message, is it ever possible for churches and followers of Christ to hold on to the gospel so tightly that we miss the purpose of the gospel? We miss the purpose of a church. Like a violin, the gospel was intended to go beyond our hearts and to go beyond our homes. It was intended to bring joy to a lost and broken world. And like the SS United States, do kingdom vessels designed to win spiritual victories ever morph into celebrity cruise liners, party boats for social entertainment? As we end our journey through Luke's gospel, don't forget, don't forget, what are we supposed to do? This is what we're supposed to do, Luke 24. Maybe you would say, man, if that's your purpose, I wanna be in that. So I wanna give you an opportunity to, to turn from sin, to trust Christ. His death on the cross was enough to cover all your sins. His death on the cross is enough for the Father to welcome you into his family. I want us to stand together. I want us to pray. Would you pray with me? And let's pray that God would draw people to himself today. Lord, I try my best to remind all of us of what our purpose is. What are the marching orders of a local New Testament church? What should we be about as disciples, as followers of Christ? We definitely need to grow. We definitely need to love you. We definitely need to worship. Those are definite things that we know your word is revealed to us that we need to do. But we also, we also need to share the gospel. We need to take the good news that has changed our lives to a lost, broken, dying world that's sitting in darkness, waiting for a little bit of good news. And we know, we know the good news. We have the good news. And so help us, O oh Lord, as we go through the month of November and we celebrate Thanksgiving around tables across, perhaps across Columbus, maybe across Colorado County, maybe across the whole United States, wherever we go, I pray that they would hear us say, I'm so thankful for Jesus that he died for me. I pray that as we enter into December and we have opportunities like never before the rest of the year to tell people what Christmas is all about. I pray we would be a witness. We don't have to know it all. We just have to know you. We just have to know that simple message of the gospel. So help us, O oh Lord, to be unleashed, to be out there doing what you've called us to do. And whenever we hear Cheryl share tonight, speak to our hearts. Do you want us to go there? Do you want us to go to Japan and work with Jacob Tice? What do you want us to do? What do you want each person here to do? Oh Lord, let us know that your purpose is bigger than just ourselves. We love you, Lord. So draw those that need salvation this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a ministry of First Baptist Church located at 1700 Milam Street, Columbus, Texas.